This weekend, like every weekend on social media, sometime either later Friday afternoon, evening to early Saturday morning, I usually post an icebreaker question on social media. And it sometimes has to do with the message that I'm preparing. And other times, I'm just interested in getting to know people and in, in my family, uh, my daughter has started to take after me. She is a great icebreaker. She's the icebreaker queen with her friends. She has a group of friends that uh, I'm fairly convinced that she's the glue to that group. The group doesn't have a lot in common, but through her icebreaker questions and conversation, it just works. And so that's one of the things I like to do every weekend, and this weekend was no different. I asked I asked this question this weekend, what's one thing that you rarely had as a kid that uh, you made sure that you would always have as an adult? Does anyone have anything like that come to mind? One, is, uh, one that always comes up is sweets. Uh, there's some families where mom was a health food nut or maybe just really restrictive about diet and serious about we got to stick to these things and so then it's after you know after getting to college or going out on your own it's just 24-hour sour patch kids um uh what is something that you didn't have as a kid but you said and you remember as a kid you said i'm i'm never going to be without that again does anybody have anything like that that's here in the room cash yeah, boy, that would have been a good one for me to think about and concentrate on. Cash, that's a good one. Yeah. Coke? Yeah, a lot of drugs in your home. Sorry about that. Uh, oh, oh, Coke, yes, co soda. Coca-Cola, yes. Yeah, you never know. And I mean, I mean it, 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 it has happened before. Yeah, sodas. Um, in my family growing up, there were always two beverages in the refrigerator. Well, there was always one, but usually two. There was milk and a uh, jug of wine or a box of wine. Uh, you know, a box of wine, how God intended it. Uh, yeah, we didn't have sodas a lot, so sodas were a big thing. Anybody else? Something that you wished that you had as a, or as a, a kid and you said you'd never really live without it as an adult? I'll tell you what, for, for what it was for me, uh, growing up for me, uh, I always had one pair of shoes. I rarely had two pairs of shoes. Uh, and the shoes that I had weren't always what I wanted. It was what we could afford. I was the youngest of six kids. We didn't have a lot of cash. And so, um, so shoes became this thing, and it, but it wasn't a... Uh, when I grow up, I'm going to have shoes. I wasn't even aware um, that, that I collected a lot of shoes as an adult until my wife pointed out that I had more shoes than she did. Uh, and, and one of the very first pairs of shoes that I could afford, uh, and it was in high school, I had worked a summer job, and I used most of my summer earnings on one pair of shoes like my freshman year in high school, and they looked almost identical to these. Adidas superstars. White with three black stripes, 
and then the rubber clamshell toe. I mean, that was like late 70s, early 80s, and that was before Run DMC. I later got the track suit and the Kanga hat and the chains, but uh, yes, and so, and so I got the, this pair, um, and this is the same size I wore when I was 5'2", and as a freshman in high school, I wore size 13s. And so I, bought the, I got these as a Christmas present this year as a, a kind of a remembrance of the first pair of shoes that I bought, uh, but it certainly wasn't the last, although I buy all my shoes on clearance because I am cheap in that way. Isn't it interesting that so much of our growth, if we look back to our childhood, so much of our growth into adulthood seems to center around providing for ourselves when we didn't feel provided for in whatever sense. It might not just be sweets and sodas and shoes, but it might be, I never was told I love you as a kid. And so I'm going to tell the people that I love, I love you, because I never heard it. And that's how we tend to roll through life, isn't it? That first, we're just trying to survive. uh, And then second, we try to elevate that. We try to graduate that to trying to, desiring to thrive. Well, as we continue our series this last Sunday before Easter, and it's kind of the culmination of the series entitled All Things New, this week we're going to look at how God gives us a new, (laughs) excuse me, a new provision a new provision. And when we're, t- when we're talking about the God of the universe that has known you, that has known me uh, from before we were even conceived by our parents, it's hard to think of God's provision as new. He is the original and ultimate provider. He, his provision is really ancient. Before time even began, his omniscience is his pre-knowing not just us, but also what we want and what we need. But in terms of how we view things, uh, how we view kind of this temporal, linear timeline of our lives in our limited understanding and existence, yes, God's provision at times really seems new to us. Like, wow, I never would have thought of that being provision. And we see it in new ways in form and in function, how it comes to us and how it works. And one of the things that God's people desperately wanted God to provide them with back in the times of the Old Testament, uh, the beginnings of, of human life, was a leader, a leader that would ensure their safety, their prosperity, and help them maintain good standing in front of their God, with their Creator. And God gave them what they wanted in temporary forms. He gave them kings that delivered in part at times. But this morning we're going to read about a new provision by God for His people. And the the passage from the Bible we'll be looking at 
first is in the first book of the New Testament. It's in the Gospel according to Matthew, and it's chapter 21, starting with verse 1. But before we start reading Scripture, let's talk to God, right? Because we can have all the head knowledge in the world. We can have all of the insightful wisdom of man, of humankind, in our minds and in our eyes and in our intellect and our vocabulary and our study, and we can read Scripture like a textbook and look at other textbooks that, that explain this Scripture and still miss the truth of Scripture. God needs to reveal it to us. And so let's talk to God and ask Him for that this morning. Father, we are going to read Your Holy Scriptures this morning. Father, use Your Holy Spirit. We beg You, we pray, we ask You to use Your Holy Spirit to open our minds, open our eyes and ears, and most importantly, Father, soften our hearts so that the truths about You and about humanity and about where we are in our lives on this journey of faith that they could penetrate our hearts so that your truth could be fruitful to us in following you and to others in sharing about you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're at home or if you're here, uh, navigate over to Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 1. This is what the scripture says. Now when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, go to the village ahead of you. Right away you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you unassuming and seated on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and he, Jesus, sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, from Nazareth in Galilee. This event that we just read about in Scripture is what we refer to as the triumphal entry. It describes how a city and people welcome a king. But how could people know of such an arrival or recognize a king hadn't slayed a competing king yet or freed his people? Well, first off, 
what do we encounter about God and humanity in this passage? Matthew, the uh, apostle, the disciple of Jesus, the writer of this gospel, points out uh, significantly and differently than the other gospel writers that, first off, that God provides the prophecy. God provides the prophecy for how to recognize this king, this king to end all kings would come and be welcomed. And, and Matthew Cribbs, uh, he, he quotes uh, the prophet Zechariah uh, in chapter 9, verse 9, when uh, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Prophecies. If you think about this, the prophecies in the Old Testament, prophecies of any sort tend to center around big events. And we notice and remember prophecies because of the big purposes that they fill and fulfill, right? If, if, someone, says, if someone says, I have a prophecy for you, a man is going to walk into the Walmart in pajamas. You're like, that's, a pro- that's, a pro- that's an everyday thing. I mean, that, that's me today. Uh, that's, how is that a big... Now, if someone says, a man is going to walk into Walmart wearing a three-piece suit and a top hat, and then he's going to sing Singing in the Rain as he spins around an umbrella, and then he's going to give everyone a shot of vaccination with his umbrella. Uh, okay, that's a big event. That's, that that, that's going to stick out to you. Why? Because you don't see that every day. Uh, number two, you might be one of those strange people that says, yeah, I would like, I, I, I dream of getting vaccinated by a man in a top hat with an umbrella syringe. Sure, that would stick out to you because it's a big event. If, if someone predicts that the Final Four is going to be a matchup between Oregon and Oregon State because, you know, Oregon State's in the Elite Eight now and Oregon plays today to get into the Elite Eight and their opposite side of the brackets. We could have an all-Oregon final basketball championship. I mean, isn't that amazing? If I prophesied that last year, you'd be like, okay, this is, I'm going to start paying attention to pastor now. We tend to pay attention to things like that, whether it's shows like The Voice or American Idol to even yearly non-sporting sporting events like the NFL draft. We love to try and predict who is the next big thing. But more often than not, uh, our hot takes and prophetic words usually turn out, if you're like me, they, ter- they turn out to be woefully wrong. And if we're lucky, they're forgettable. Uh, there's a Twitter account that I follow that uh, the, the handle is at 
old takes exposed. And the account is called Freezing Cold Takes. And it's this, it's this person that, that, that uh, saves, catalogs people's hot takes, their big prophecies and predictions, and then when they, when they don't pan out and fail miserably, they just retweet them at the proper time. It's, it's, it's like a really humbling uh, event if you get, and they're mostly sports takes, but they're pop culture takes as well. We like prophets, but we don't really pay attention to the big events and the prophecies that never come true. At least we don't want to be held to that standard of, of being wrong. But Zechariah's take, Zechariah's take was anything but freezing because God gave him the prophecy that your king is coming to you. He is legitimate, uh, victorious, and humble. Legitimate. Legitimate because he's from the line of David. He's born of a virgin. He's announced by the forerunner John the Baptist, and he's blessed by the Father in an audible, visible form in front of all these other people. He's legitimate. He's victorious. This Jesus, this Galilean, this man from Nazareth, he's victorious. How? Well, he hasn't conquered death yet. He hasn't risen from the grave. How is he victorious? Well, he was tested by the religious elite who, whom he promptly schooled. He was tempted, tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, tempted by Satan himself, who he frustrated. He's legitimate. He's victorious. He's humble. The Son of God, leaving heaven to be born in a manger, manger son of a carpenter, a, a servant leader, as we studied last week and happens after this triumphal entry, that washes feet and dines with sinners. God provided this Notable prophecy of a king to end all kings to Zechariah, who Jesus himself reminds folks that disobedient and rebellious Jews murdered this prophet, Zechariah. That's in Matthew chapter 23, if you feel like noodling around where Jesus talks about this prophet that announces his kingship and how he's going to be welcomed. Hosanna in the highest Hosanna. I'm not going to get into the Hebrew root of where that word comes from or the Greek translation of that word, but let me just suffice it to say that when Hosanna is, is spoken out and, and yelled out in the Psalms, it's, 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 a, it's a saying of uh, rescue us, save us. It's, it's one of, of, of seeing the water rushing towards your porch and rising up and this, and this pleading and this call of save us that goes quickly to blessed be the one that comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's already going, uh, whoever God sends to save us, we're, we're calling out for salvation and rescue, but whoever God sends is blessed because we'll be saved if and when that happens. But there's this shift that happens here where that proclamation, that, that, 
that prophecy of a rescuer coming actually turns to the crowd saying not save us and rescue us, but it's more of Hosanna, we're saved. We're, we're rescued. Here's our king. God. God gives us prophecies to give us hope for these future events so that we can not only think about them, but watch for them. But just a heads up, people tend to dislike prophets. <laughs> people tend to dislike prophets, especially when they announce God's expectations, his purposes, and if people are failing to live up to them. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament announced the purposes of God to the people on behalf of the Father, so that much more the Son of God, who was to be the perfect prophet, speaking for the Father, Jesus was about to experience a similar dismissal that Zechariah experienced. Death by disobedient and rebellious people of God. And while Jesus is the perfect prophet, we're talking about this morning, this Palm Sunday, we're talking about his triumphal entry as not just the next, not just the perfect prophet, but the perfect king today. So let's just close out this point re-emphasizing that God provides his big picture purposes through prophecy. And that's one of the great gifts that we have is the Word of God that records these prophecies and these promises of God through the prophets. So God provides the prophecy. Next, when we encounter God in, this, in, the, in these passages, we see that God provides the particulars. He provides the prophecy, the big picture, and He provides the particulars, the practical details needed for his purposes. And in this narrative specifically, that includes prophesied beasts of burden, a donkey and a colt, a female donkey, a, a, a mother donkey, and her foal, the colt. And interestingly enough, Jesus needs two. Why does Jesus need two? Because, well, first of all, they were prophesied. <laughs> he needs two. Jesus is not like, Oh, no, don't, don't go get two. Just get one. All I need is one. It's like, no, it's prophesied this way, and so I need both. Now, don't picture Jesus riding in one foot on each one and hold it like standing up like one of those trick water skiers, holding the reins of both and riding in like some circus act. That's likely not what he did. But what most theologians believe is that the, the older, uh, number one, he needed the young colt, but he also needed the, the mama donkey. Why? Well, possibly because uh, the young colt had never been ridden before, and so it probably wouldn't have left its mother. Donkeys can be stubborn. And, and, so, and so to get the colt, you take the mother. Uh, because of the, the path of the triumphal entry, there was... Uh, part of it that was uh, steep and uphill, so perhaps he rode the uh, mama donkey, the mature donkey, up the hills and then rode the colt for the first time of any time in its life, rode the colt 
into the city gates, but those details uh, are, not, are not pertinent to your and my uh, spiritual growth, but they are particulars. And God provides the particulars, the practical details needed for his purposes. There's also, in these two donkeys, it's more than just transportation. There's potential imagery here where the mature mama donkey represents potentially the people of Israel, the Jews, those that know better, that, that know that God has prophesied that there is a Messiah, a, a perfect coming king uh, for Israel, and that the cult that has never been ridden, that is unaware of this Messiah, represents the Gentiles. So there's potential imagery there that paints a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, this new perfect king, a king to end all kings, is a king for both Jew and Gentile. But I want to ask this question off of the particulars of this story and into you and into your lives. When, when it comes to your plans and purposes, the plans and purposes of your life, I want to ask you this question. Do you worry more about the big thing? Do you worry more about the big thing that you're wanting to accomplish? Do you spend more time worrying about the purpose, or do you spend more time worrying about the particulars, the details, the how things will come to be in your life? Uh, a show of hands, how many of you worry about the big picture things more than the little stuff? Okay, very few hands, but a few hands. How many of you tend to worry and obsess over the little things and the little, th yeah, most of the hands? Isn't that interesting? First of all, it's interesting that there's both in the room, and it's important for us to empathize with that not everybody is wired to worry <laughs> in the same way that we do, that, that what we minimize about worry in our lives uh, might be maximized in someone else's. Why, though, do most of us stress over the practical particulars? Here's my theory. It's just, I'm just an amateur at this. I'm just taking a stab at the dark. I'm throwing a dart at the dartboard without looking. But I think it's probably because those particulars are the things that we feel like we can control, right? We might not be able to control the big picture, the big end goal, the big prophecy of how this is going to work out. I can't, I can't control... Uh, uh, just by something simple in my day-to-day -day life that I'm going to make it um, on Broadway or I'm going to make it, um, whether it's Broadway in Nashville, as a honky-tonk singer. Yes, that's my goal. I want to be a singer. Some of you uh, sing on, used to sing on Broadway. Uh, hopefully you'll sing again soon on Broadway. But, but I might not be able to control that, but I can control... Um, how, the route that I drive to get to Broadway, right? And I can seemingly control the traffic that I'm going to encounter. And when I can't, that gets on me. 
So the things that we seemingly can control, those particulars, those details are the things that we tend to worry about because those are the things that we think that we can do without God's help. That's where the stress comes. And so what happens when we stop having success over those details? When things stop working out for us, we become angry or we become miserable. We become needy and we feel sorry for ourselves when we can't provide the practical for ourselves. Listen to what, or actually read what Oswald Chambers says here. Yeah, you can read that. If we give way to self-pity and indulge in the luxury of misery, we remove God's riches from our lives and hinder others from entering into His, what? Provision. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing Him with our own self-interest. It causes us to open our mouths only to complain, and we simply become spiritual sponges, always absorbing, never giving, and never being satisfied. And there is nothing lovely or generous about our lives. That is some deep spiritual insight. Self-pity leads to the luxury of misery. Woe is me. Chambers says that we indulge in that misery. What does that mean? Feeling sorry for yourself or lashing out at others when we can't control the particulars and the details in our lives. It's becoming intoxicated with hopelessness, this luxury of misery that Chambers writes about, focusing so intently on the particulars falling your way that when you miss the point that you miss the point and purpose for your season of life. Remember what Chambers said happens when we indulge in the misery. We remove God's riches from our lives and hinder others from entering into his provision. When we become so obsessed with how life should happen, we remove God from the throne of our lives. And we plop ourselves down instead, and so begins our frantic conducting of an orchestra of events and variables that we can never harmonize or control. When when we grasp the truth that God not only provides the prophecy, the vision of purpose for our lives, but that he also provides the particulars, the practical. When when we grasp that truth, what we're really doing is that we're acknowledging that he's in control, that he's got this, and he doesn't need our talents or our skills or our organizational acumen. He does use us, but he uses his plans when he uses us. And, and his plans can include ours. They can overlap, 
but our plans never overrule his plans. He uses his resources, and that can include you and I. Think about it. When your purposes and methods are, in your view, superior or supreme, you're basically telling God and the world that you are self-sufficient, that you are all-sufficient. And when you freak out, and you will, you'll freak out when your purposes and your particulars don't come to be. And what happens is, when that happens, you're testifying that God is not capable or present on the throne of your life. But think about this for a second. If you were promised a king that would free you, that would free you, uh, free your family and your nation from bondage into peace and prosperity, what would you picture? What kind of king would you picture? You would probably, the, the practical particulars of this picture would probably be some sort of superhero, right? Look like uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson or uh, Captain America. The old one, not the new one. The, the new one, I don't know. There's something about his jaw that I don't know. If you haven't seen uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you'll understand when I see it. I, I'm, I'm going to give him a chance, though, but he's not Cap. But that's who you would picture, right? You would picture some sort of superhero, but God provided the particulars in who we would picture back in the prophecy, in the big picture, remember? Legitimate, victorious, and humble. And let's don't forget this important detail about the details, and that is that God uses the practical details to bring Him glory. He uses the practical details to bring Him glory, and usually those practical details are not the practical details of the story that we would use if we wrote the story. And that's the whole point, right? God uses the practical details to show off, to bring Him glory so that we don't take the credit. A donkey and a colt. Talk about, talk about calling your shot. <laughs> Old Testament prophecy. Yeah, your king's coming uh, on a, a, a female donkey and her colt. So watch for that. Oh yeah, and he's legitimate. I mean, there's, I mean his resume is perfect. He's legitimate, uh, and uh, he's victorious. I mean, no one can beat him. The wisest, the you know, the uh, but also he's the most humble. That's calling the shot. Well, God provides the particulars, even the palm, the the palms, the cloaks. There were no saddles, so the disciples put cloaks on. Uh, there's a, a dusty road, and also just the, the fact that, that uh, in honor of a king, uh, you want a path, you want to roll out, in our modern terms, you want to roll out the red carpet. Uh, there is no red carpet. Yeah, we've got cloaks, we've got palms. We're going to lay those down, and we're going to wave them, similar to the prophecy and revelation that would come from John. So we've got the particulars. And then finally, God 
provides the perfect. God provides the perfect. It's like I left off a word. The perfect ending. The perfect, uh, the perfect climax. The perfect uh, plot twist. No. The perfect. God provides the perfect in His Son. Jesus. He provides the perfect prophet, the perfect king. Uh, God provides the perfect for our good. I want us to turn in Scripture over to Peter's second letter. Second uh, Peter uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It's the introduction. And I want us to look at this for a second. Uh, I want us to hear from the denier. <laughs> you know, last week we talked about Jesus, uh, Judas the betrayer and Peter the denier. I think that Thomas gets a bad rap as an apostle, doubting Thomas. We should just call Peter the denier. You know, and he could, he, we can just label him by his worst moment, right? No. Um, I want us to read what Peter, um, uh, how he introduces himself in this pastoral letter. From Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have been granted a faith just as precious as ours. May grace and peace be lavished on you. He knows about grace and peace being lavished on the denier, right? Denying Jesus three times on the way to his crucifixion. Be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I can pray this. What he just, this lavish grace. I can pray this because of his divine power. Because His divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the One who called us by His own glory and excellence. Through these things He has bestowed on us His precious and most magnificent promises so that by, so that by means of what was promised you may, be, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. What does it mean again that God provides the perfect? That God provides the perfect. What is Peter talking about here that he can pray these things of lavish grace over us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we can be provided for. It's that God gave us His perfect Son so that we could be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of divine nature. When someone provides you with a lovely meal, Think of a lovely meal and someone spreads it out and puts it on the table and everyone's milling around in the other room. The, the host has provided this meal and at some point the dinner bell rings, someone says dinner's ready, uh, everybody starts to gather around the table and then the host at some point basically says, okay, 
partake. It's time to partake. When we take communion together, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper like we're going to do this Friday for Good Friday, we talk about partaking of the elements of communion, the the bread and the cup. When we partake, we're, we're taking something that has been provided to us and we're ingesting it, we're, 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 we're infusing it into our bodies, either for physical nur- nourishing or for, in this case, spiritual, eternal nourishing. And this is what Peter is talking about, is that in our lives, whether it's because of our upbringing of what we had or what we didn't have, we're first looking to survive. But then we're, we're seeking and we're desiring to thrive. Like everything in us is trying to provide for us and to provide for others in a way that we were provided for, so it was modeled rightly for us, or to change the bent of our family tree. That we can do it, that if we don't do it, who will? And then when, we, when our plans don't go the way we thought they would, when the particulars don't fall into place how we pictured them, um, we scramble. We become a whirling dervish or we become despondent and we, and, we, and we indulge in that luxury of misery. But the good news of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city is that God provided perfect. That we don't have to be perfect. That I don't have to be the perfect provider for myself or my family. Have you ever known someone or been someone that expected perfection from others and realized that that expectation of perfection from others, that harshness, that meticulous attention to every particular in detail so that our purposes would be accomplished or their purposes would be accomplished, that that was just really driven from our insecurity and kind of self-awareness of our imperfection. The way we deal with our spouses, the way we deal with our kids, the way we deal with our employees or coworkers or teammates, the way we look at other people's lawns, when we won't look at our own. This expectation of perfection is what then gets us in this loop of luxuriating in misery, in our own self-misery, because we know we can never be perfect, but God provided the perfect. God provides the perfect rescue through a perfect sacrifice and gives us His Son's perfect nature to partake in. That we don't have to be perfect, that Jesus was perfect on our behalf, and we get to partake in that nature. And so, following a perfect king, 
God will provide his prophecies and promises about the big things, the particulars in how we can notice that that is God's promise, that is God's prophecy, but also the particulars for life and living. In comparing us to sparrows, Jesus tells us that we will be cared for, but also God will and has provided the perfect substitute for us, and that's Jesus. You know, the, the name, one of the names of God is Jehovah-Jireh, first seen in, in Genesis 22 when God pro- will provide for Abraham in the sacrifice of Isaac. He provides a ram in a thicket. So, let's, let's wrap up with examining our hearts this morning. Examining our hearts in light of these truths of God's provision in our lives. And I want to ask three questions. I want you to ask yourself three questions. First, do you trust the prophecies and promises of God as are laid out in Scripture? Do you trust them? Has God shown Himself trustworthy in bringing to light His purposes and prophecies through the promises that He's made to His people? Do you trust the prophecies and promises of God? If you don't, why? Why? Ask God to show you, to illuminate your mind and heart to the truths that are in Scripture. Secondly, do you trust the plan and particulars to God? Like how He's going to bring about His promises and prophecies. Do you trust the particulars and details of how He's planned them out? For believers in Jesus, for church-going folk, this is the hardest way to live out your testimony. Trusting God with the plan and particulars. Whether it's with your career, with your relationships. Think about it. Are you, are you a good Christian? Well, then things should work out the way you want, right? There's stories in the Bible about things, the details, not working out the way it should. Read the book of Job. How should Job's life play out? The details, the particulars. Not how the story of Job goes, but God had different particulars and different plans. Jesus shares about the story of the two sons of this father that seemingly raised them right. And you've got an elder brother that doesn't love the father for who he is, but, but loves being the good son. And then you've got a prodigal. What did the father do to deserve a prodigal? God? And yet, we have to ask ourselves, do we trust the plan and particulars of our lives to God? Do we trust that storms happen for a reason. And lastly, 
Do you trust the perfection of Jesus? Or do you say, I've got this. I've got this, and uh, Jesus, Jesus is my wingman. My red wing. There you go. That's a really current reference. Is Jesus your perfection, or do you need to be as perfect as possible to feel worthy when he's the only one that's worthy? That he's the reason we have any worthiness. It's the season, friends. This spring, this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday time is the season for letting Jesus be your perfection. If 2020 taught us anything, it's that we're not in control of the promises of God and we're not in control of the particulars of how He's going to make that happen. But if you trust Him, and you can, He's faithful. And Jesus is perfect enough for all of us. In close, uh, our Heavenly Father provides everything we need. Everything we need to be rescued from the death and darkness of this world, this old world, into a new life and a new world where He is making all things new. That's good news. Let's thank Him for that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, as we prepare our hearts to sing, Father, I pray for everyone within earshot of my voice that our hosannas are not ones of rescue me and save me, but that they graduate to ones of we're rescued, we're saved. But Father, You hear both kinds. And Father, there are people that feel the need for rescue, that feel the need to be saved from the rising waters. And Father, um, I pray that You would use Your Spirit to help them feel Your nearness right now that you are near and that you will save and that you are there, ready to save. Father, we thank you that you are the the sender of the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect priest that ministers to us in our time of need. And Father, we want to worship you through your Son and by your Spirit in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.